times in our life, Lord, when we celebrate things that have made a monumental change in our life. When we celebrate the birth of our Savior, your Son, Jesus. When we celebrate on Easter. Those are days of celebration that have impacted our lives and the lives of millions of other people. And you've made a change in our daily life and you've made a change in our eternal estate. And Father, we're here to give you thanks this morning for giving us your Son that he might live and die and live again that we might have life. And Father, you think with that blessing in our life and being drawn to you on a daily basis closer and closer that we get it together that we'd figure it out and that we would start living the kind of lives on a daily basis that you would like us to live. Lives that are pleasing to you and a witness to the fact that we know Jesus. Dear God, often that's not true. Oftentimes we have feelings that are terribly inappropriate for a Christian. Oftentimes, Lord, we think about things and we put those thoughts into action And we disappoint you immensely. And oftentimes, dear God, we don't do the things you'd have us do. We do things we shouldn't do. I'd like you to forgive us, Father, but I know that forgiveness comes when we individually call out to you and ask, Father, forgive me. And as we call out to you this morning, and we're honest about the lives that we live, we have an assurance that no sooner have we asked for that forgiveness that through the shed blood of Jesus Christ it is atoned for. It's paid for. Father, I thank you for your grace and I thank you for your mercy. All around this planet this morning, Lord, people are coming together to give thanks to you on Easter Sunday. Because you have worked a miracle in our world and in our lives. For you took one who was dead and you made him alive. And he lives today. And he has promised that he's going to come again. And he's going to assemble us that we might live forever with you. Father, you've blessed us. And yet there are a lot of people in our country and other countries that do not know you. And do not know your son Jesus. I ask you, dear God, for a revival in our land that will reach around this world. I pray that you might be introduced once again into our society. And instead of people looking for excuses to invite you not to be here, that instead your children would call out with a deafening kind of sound that encourages you to be here. And to know that you absolutely are welcome in the United States of America. Father, I ask for that revival to take place in the hearts of folks who have never known you and other people who have known you and have forgotten about you. I pray, dear God, from the White House down through all three branches of government at the federal and state and even local levels that your Holy Spirit would make you known 
And I pray, dear God, starting right here in our community from the bottom up, that we would so desire you to be a part of our lives, that we would talk about you, and that we would cause others to stop and think about you. Father, every time we come together, we have folks in our church and other people we care about that are in the hospitals, others that are at home who are ill, and today is no exception, Lord. We pray for them and pray for your blessing on them. And as we are in this room together, there are always those who are struggling with one thing or another. I pray you'd teach us not to be anxious, but that you, dear God, would teach us to relax and to know that you're with us and that you love us, and that you're going to be at work in our lives now and all the days of our life. No matter where we go and what we do, you're there. And that love is all-encompassing. Give us that kind of confidence, Lord. Give us that kind of peace. And help us to be a living witness to other people. Father, again, we thank you for this beautiful day. And for the very reason we've come together. To say thank you for working that miracle and raising Jesus from the dead. Just as you're going to raise us from the dead. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd invite you to open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Luke. To the Gospel of Luke. We're going to start in the 24th chapter. And we're going to begin with the very first verse. Luke, the 24th chapter, beginning with the first verse. This morning we're going to study the first nine verses of chapter 24. Once you've found your place, put your finger in your Bible and look up so I'll know we're ready to move on. And as I typically do, an encouragement, smile at me when you do that. Let's ask God to bless us. Let's pray. Father, this is your word which you have recorded under the power and inspiration of your Holy Spirit. And you have used it to touch people generation after generation. And now it's our turn. Open our ears up, Lord, and peel away the things that would insulate our hearts. And help us, I pray, to be impacted. For our minds to be renewed. And for our hearts to be warmed. By the words of a loving God. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you may have heard a movie open, by the way, I don't get a commission for this, but a movie opened this last week, and the title of the movie is Heaven is Real. Some of you may have already seen it. Some of us were at the theater last night. I want to encourage you, if you haven't seen the movie, go see it. And the reason I do that is not because it's totally biblically accurate, so leave your Bibles at home. It's entertainment by Hollywood. But folks, it's good entertainment. It's uplifting. It'll warm your heart. It very likely will put a tear in your eye as it did mine. It's a beautiful movie. 
And there are a lot of people who will go see that movie who will benefit from it. So I encourage you to talk about it and encourage others to go. And also, when movies like that are profitable, maybe Hollywood will produce less things that are less profitable to us. So I encourage you to be involved in that. But you know, if you go see the movie, it's about a little four-year-old boy. His daddy is a minister. And that little four-year-old boy has a near-death experience. And in that near-death experience, he experiences heaven. And he comes back to this life and tells people what he experienced. He talks about people he met there, about things that he saw, about how he felt. And I better stop or I'll give the whole movie away. (laughs) There's a question that's inevitable. The question is, is it a true story? I think some people, when they see the movie, are going to say, absolutely, that's a true story, because they want it to be true. I think some other people, given our attitudes, will say, no, I'm skeptical of that, and I don't think that's a true story, but it's a sweet story. And then there are many of other folks who would say, I just don't know. Well, there's no way for us to know if it is true or not true. There were no eyewitnesses. There are no other accounts who saw what the little boy says he saw. So we accept it as entertainment, and let's leave it at that. What I want to do is I want to talk to you about an event that took place historically, that I can tell you for sure is true. And the reason we can say that, and that I can say that, is because there were eyewitnesses. You can take your Bible and you can go through the four Gospels, and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all give us an accounting of this event. You can read the words of Peter in one of his epistles, and when you read Peter's words, you're reading the words of a man who was physically there, who experienced the resurrection of Jesus. Imagine that. Someone was dead and made alive. And they're giving personal witness to it. And then when you get over into the epistles, the letters written by the Apostle Paul, who did not walk with Jesus, he was not an eyewitness to the miracles and the healings, and he wasn't there when he was raised from the dead. But when God called him to faith, he was on a road going to the city of Damascus. And he was encountered by the resurrected Jesus Christ. We have a lot of first-hand evidence. What I want to do is I want to walk you through one of those accounts about the resurrection and show you what was going on. Look at the 24th chapter of the Gospel of Luke with me. And I want you to follow along. And then if you would, keep your Bibles open and refer back to it as I... Go through the passage verse by verse. Listen carefully, folks. God is about to speak to you and to me. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. 
While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. If you look at those first three verses, they talk about the experience of the empty tomb. And they say that those things happened on the first day of the week. You remember what happened on the last day of the week? On Friday? Jesus had left Thursday night after having Passover and initiating the Lord's Supper. Had gone across the Kidron Valley to the next mound. Gone into the Garden of Gethsemane. And there he and his disciples were praying. All of his disciples but one. One, a man named Judas, had already betrayed Jesus for profit. He brought the Roman authorities and the Jewish leaders, and they came into the dark of that garden, and they found Jesus, and they arrested him. And they brought him from over in the Garden of Gethsemane, back through the valley, back into the city of Jerusalem. And as they were doing that, something interesting happened with the disciples. One named John apparently carried enough influence and credentials that he was able to walk with Jesus and with these Romans and Jews back into the city and into the court of the high priest. Another one of them, named Peter, he walked with them, but he did it at a safe distance. He did it far enough away that nobody would see him and identify him with Jesus. And Scripture tells us that the other men who were with him all just kind of faded away, not wanting to be recognized as followers. I always wonder where I would have fallen out. If I would have walked with John or with Peter, or not at all. They got Jesus into the high priest courtyard, and they locked the gate. Peter arrived at the outside of the gate. John apparently saw him and went and gained access for Peter. And Peter came in and immediately went into the midst of a group of people in the courtyard, started to warm himself by a fire they had started, because now it's early morning and damp outside. And once he got into the courtyard, he tried to disappear in the midst of all those other people. They took Jesus. They took him into a room. And they began to try to find cause to take his life. And they debated about what they could charge him with. And finally, they agreed they could charge him with blasphemy. And what happened next is appalling. The moment they identified what they could charge him with, all of the hatred and all of the emotion that was built up inside of them poured out, 
and they took a hood and put it over Jesus' head. Surely so they wouldn't have to look him in the eye. And they began to slap him and hit him. I made this point the other night. If you bundle your anger up and you don't get it out in a healthy way, when it comes out, it comes out in a very destructive way. It causes you to be hard-hearted. And it causes you to do things you would not otherwise do. So if you've got anger in your heart of hearts, do something constructive with it. Be reconciled and get that behind you. Let's it take control of you. After they had beaten Jesus, some folks turned and looked and they saw Peter. And on three different occasions, people said, you were with him. We know you were there. And three different times, Peter, to his own shame, said, I did not know that man. And he was afraid to own up to that. They took Jesus, and under the weight of the cross that he was going to be crucified on, they had him walk through the city streets of Jerusalem. Finally, somebody had to help him, and they appointed a man to help. And they carried that cross outside of the walls of the city of Jerusalem. They nailed Jesus to it, and they suspended him in the air between two criminals. And there he hung until he chose to give up his spirit and die. And die he did. Folks, it was not a near-death experience. He died, and he was dead. They took his body down. They had disposed of his clothing. Because it was the approach of the Sabbath, the Sabbath for the Jews starting at sundown on Friday, they hurried and took his body, and they gave it to his followers. They took it to a private tomb and put his body in the tomb, and the Jews asked the Romans to seal it so nobody could steal that body. They rolled this great stone up against the entrance to that tomb. And they placed Roman guards who had forfeiture their own lives had to make sure that body was not removed. Friday night. By Saturday night sundown, when the Jewish Sabbath has ended... It was too dark to go and to do anything with the body of Jesus. So some of the women who were followers of his began to fix the spices that they would use the next morning to anoint his body and to wrap it as they were preparing it for permanent burial. When the sun came up the next morning, as it was first breaking day, they set out and they went to the tomb. Right at daybreak, they arrived at the tomb, and they were surprised to find that great stone had been rolled away. You can read in another one of the Gospels that there was a bit of an earthquake that took place, not to roll the stone away, but to announce that angels were being sent from heaven. And those angels, we're told, are the ones who roll that stone away. The women arrived with their spices and they looked at the tomb, 
with the rock rolled away, and they went inside, and there was nobody. Jesus was gone. Eyewitnesses to an empty tomb. Eyewitnesses that something had happened. One who was dead was no longer there. If you look down at verses 4 through 7, you'll see the introduction of two angels. Isn't it interesting how God sends angels when there are specific things he wants to accomplish? And he sends angels, and sometimes human beings can see the angels. And in this case, the women who were gathered there saw the angels. When it talks about the coming of the angels, I think it's important to note they didn't come walking up and say, Hi, I'm an angel. Instead, what did they do? Scripture says they suddenly appeared. They were not there, and now they're there. Folks, that would get our attention. If two angels appeared right here, I dare say you would take a gulp of air and be startled. And that's precisely what happened to those women. But there's something I think more important than that. When you read about angels in the Bible, there's something about their physical appearance. It's dazzling, it's white, it's bright, it's clean, it's righteous. And if you look through consistently through the scriptures, those who stand in the presence of God are changed. So when the angels come out of heaven and out of the presence of God and we get to see them, what you see is someone who has this brilliant glow about them. You remember the accounts of Moses when he went up on Mount Sinai and he was one-on-one at God's invitation? When he was up there, a change took place in his complexion. He became white and bright and brilliant. And Scripture says when he came off the mount and he started to relate to people, over a period of time, that brilliance would start to fade. And then the next time he'd go up on the mount or into the presence of God, he would regain that Shekinah, that Hebrew word which means this beautiful essence about him, this brilliance in color. I can't tell you how many times I've preached that over the years. It would surprise you that it's been more than four or five years. That was a joke. (laughs) I was sitting in my study this week, and I thought to myself, we're going to experience that same change. The people that you love, who have already died, and we all have a bunch of them, don't we? Their souls are in the presence of God at this moment. They're in the presence of that brilliance and that beauty that is symbolic of peace and happiness and righteousness. And they're experiencing it right this minute. And when Jesus comes again and he takes those who have already died and those of us who are still alive and he brings us together And he clothes us with our resurrected bodies. And we begin eternity with him. We're going to appear just like those angels. That brilliance. All the tension will be gone. All the heartache and concerns and anxiety will be gone. 
No more tears. No more worrying about death. That brilliant light is symbolic of being in the presence of God. And everything will be okay. A new heaven, a new earth, and a redeemed people. It's interesting that when the women saw the angels, they didn't have those thoughts. And it's a shame because what happened next is really sad. They looked at those two angels and the women, Scripture says, just instinctively dropped to the ground and bowed their heads to the ground. They were humbled and they were afraid because they were standing or had been in the presence of someone who was divinely sent. And the angels speak to them. Now they've got their attention. And one of the angels said, What are you doing here? Why did you come here to look for the one who's alive? And this is the place of the dead. And you know what that brings to mind? What happened to their faith? If they really believed that Jesus was going to be raised from the dead, why did they go to anoint a body for a permanent burial? If Peter and the other disciples really believed it, why the night before didn't they say to the women, don't fix those spices? There's not going to be anybody there. You know what happens to us? We get so caught up in the routine of life and what's expected of us that we often take our faith and put it on the shelf. And what was expected normally was that they would take the body of the deceased, that they would anoint it with spices, and that they would wrap it and gently put it in its permanent resting place. And they were all so so caught up with their grief and caught up with that tradition that they stopped thinking about what Jesus had told them. He wasn't going to be there. And then one of the angels said to them, Don't you remember when you all were up in Galilee ministering and Jesus talked to you? Don't you remember what he told you? He said that he must be delivered to evil men. It's part of God's plan. He got delivered instead of you and instead of me. He must be delivered. He must suffer. He must die a crucifixion death. If you tried to do that for yourself, to earn your own salvation, you'd be sitting here today with nail holes in your hands having accomplished nothing. Because you and I cannot earn our own salvation. Sin is too deeply rooted in us. It is earned only by Jesus who was sinless, who took our place on a cross. And he died for you and he died for me. And that death was sufficient for the forgiveness of any and all sins. Absolutely effective. The angel said, He had to be delivered. He had to be crucified. And then they said, and he will have been raised from the dead. Jesus said that when they were in Galilee, 
and now they're in Jerusalem, and it is a reality. Interesting. First-hand account of what's going on. And we begin to see that there were people right there who knew Jesus wasn't dead. And all kinds of affirmation. If you look at 8 and 9, you'll see that suddenly the women remember. It's an interesting thing about us human beings. I've said this so many times before myself. I learn something and then I get to learn it again. And then I get to learn it again. And I look back and I say, you know, I've already learned that. Why am I relearning it? And before I inhale good, something happens and I find myself so involved in the world that I forget what I learned spiritually. And then I have to learn it again. Well, here these women are and they remember what Jesus had told them. They were sparked by the angels and what the angels said. And what did they do? They immediately got up and went back into the city. They went to the gathering place of the apostles and others, and they said, let us tell you what we just experienced. And they give another eyewitness account of what has just taken place, that he has been raised from the dead. Did I adequately prove that? Can you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? If so, then what we're doing is we're affirming a historical event. That's not the point. The point is, it did happen. And because it happened, it has impacted the lives of millions of people. And the way it impacts our life is this. When you believe that the one who died and was raised from the dead was the Son of God, and when you believe He died for your sins, and when you invite Him to be your Savior, something happens. Another miracle. And you as a believer become part of the family of God. And that can never be taken away from you. It's more than a historical reality. It is the truth that you and I, through Jesus Christ, become part of the family of God. And then the promise is true also, that when we die, we will be raised from the dead. That's what that historical reality is all about. That we will be raised from the dead and that you and I will spend eternity in the presence of all that brilliance and all that peace and all that love. And we'll be okay like never, ever before. I have to ask you, do you believe that Jesus was the Son of God? Do you believe He died for your sins. Have you accepted Him as your Lord and Savior? It's a done deal. By faith, you're saved. And God gave you that faith. Amen? Oh, by the way, 
Are you living that out today? Or is it just something you did intellectually? You see, we who are changed in here ought to live like it. There ought to be a substantial change in our life. And it ought to go on day after day. And when we don't change in a positive way, and we take a step backward under the power of the conviction of God, we ought to then step forward again and keep growing in our oneness. That's your way of saying, thanks, Lord. Thanks for saving me. Let there be no question. Jesus was raised from the dead. Let there be no question. As a follower of Jesus, you will be raised from the dead. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, there's something down deep inside of all of us that would like to see a miracle and would like to see angels and would like to see things happen supernaturally. And you just did it for us again. For supernaturally you have given us faith that we, under the power of your Holy Spirit, might respond by believing. Thank you, dear God, for our time in your word. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me invite you to stand. I remind you, if you would like to join our choir in singing the Hallelujah Chorus after the benediction, you're certainly invited to stand where you are and to sing praise to God. If you're one of the gifted ones like I am and can't sing, you can tap your foot because it's a beautiful, beautiful way of honoring God. God bless you and God keep you. May his face shine on you and might you reflect that wherever you go and whoever you come in contact with. Know, my friends, that you are loved mightily by God. God bless you and God keep you. In the name of the Father and in the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm-hmm.